Do it now. But do what now? Uh, what now? Hey, everyone. It's Michael. We normally just do events for our Arch Enemy Patreon supporters, but this week we wanted to get together with all our supporters to answer your questions about the Dobbs holding. We had this event on Tuesday night, and it was moderated by our friend James LaRock, who uh, used to be a podcast collaborator with us in a previous podcast. He's also a regular in the 5 to 4 Slack, and you'll hear us talking about how he got a bunch of questions from that Slack. Joining that community of enthusiastic weirdos is a huge benefit of joining the $10 a month Arch Enemy tier. Uh, we had a really good time talking with everyone, and we're grateful for the community that has sprung up around 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. James, how do you like to be introduced? Because you're a writer? You're a lawyer, yeah. uh, former Mike Dicta, uh, Buffalocialism on Twitter, and also very famously, um, I think we mentioned this in our very first episode, but uh, the guy who came up with the name 5-4. Yes. yes. We were pitching the uh, the concept to friends asking for a podcast name, and James said 5-4. And now every time someone replies to one of our episodes like you guys should be six three now <laughs> i think of james i think of the day when you said that i i legitimately suggested strict scrutiny and people were like that's lame and then they were like somebody else already has that and i was like okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i still think you guys should have fought for it yeah, yeah. probably james is going to be moderating and running through some questions we have solicited questions within our Slack, which were quite good, frankly. Yeah. For once. Um, so, James, you can take it away. Sure. So a lot of great questions in the Slack. Several people asked, what should be the next steps for the Democrats in responding to this Dobbs case overturning Roe? <laughs> Peter, do you want to take that? Yeah, I, I think that the Democrats and the left need to be both ambitious and specific with their goals. It can't be just vote, right? It needs to be, here's what we are going to do now. Here's what we are going to do if we win in November. When I look at the list of proposals that AOC gave uh, in a yeah. tweet thread the other day, mm -hmm. um, all of them should be on the Democrats' agenda to some degree. Several are sort of unrealistic in the short term, but I do appreciate the ambition. There are several with sort of massive political hurdles, which I think she understands. Court expansion, you know, you're obviously not going to expand the court this year, similar with like overturning the Hyde Amendment. Those things are worth pushing, but unlikely to succeed, at least right now, right? Manchin still seems to value the filibuster more than anything else on earth. And that's going to get in the way of any legislation, which includes codifying Roe and codifying other right to privacy cases, all of which, though, I think are great goals. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think maybe you lose. It's important to fight. It's important to fight politically, and it's important to fight uh, on the chance that you win uh, and that there is some material value there. You know, there are a lot of interesting ideas being floated. The idea of clinics on federal lands is an interesting one that I had not yes. really heard before the decision came down. You know, again, my instinct is that you'd run into trouble there with the Hyde Amendment, which limits federal funding of abortions, and also with states continuing to prosecute people who provide access to abortions, even if it's on federal land. The really interesting solution that jumps out to me as unique 
is expanding knowledge of and access to at-home abortion pills. <laughs> the FDA approved them for prescription by telehealth and distribution by mail last year, probably in response to uh, COVID, but possibly anticipating this to some degree. Merrick Garland came out saying that the uh, DOJ's position was that states cannot interfere with the transport and use of FDA-approved drugs. So the legal and political hurdles seem a little more manageable there, and the direct impact would be enormous. You know, we're talking about something that's more than just a Band-Aid, and it's more than just procedural. It could ensure access to safe and reliable abortions across the country. And I think it should be a priority because of that, because it's the one that feels the most like direct action. And that's sort of why why it jumped out to me. Yeah. You know, the two you mentioned are also kind of interesting. The, those last two, the federal lands and the mailing uh, abortion pills, mifepristone, mifepristone. <laughs> you know, the thing with the federal lands, I was reading a piece where there were like White House attorneys on background talking or or not on background, but like anonymously talking about illegal challenges to that, which is not necessarily that states have concurrent jurisdiction, but that they're very concerned about states charging like aiding and abetting and attempt crimes for all of the, you know, efforts leading up to the abortion on federal land. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, one potential hurdle. And so they're really worried about being put in that position. The other is that, you know, eventually they'll leave office. And if the statute of limitations hasn't run, then a DeSantis administration could retroactively uh, charge people who had abortions on federal land in states where abortions were illegal for state crimes, because uh, there's, again, concurrent jurisdiction there. Um, So they're concerned about that. And those are fair concerns. It raises the question of like, how did you not get this shit sorted out like a year ago? How are you not all on the same page with this already? Right? Like this is, this is the problem with like hashing out solutions in the fucking press right. after this decision is already done Yeah. rather than using the year and a half uh, advance notice you had on this to like work stuff out. The, the, the male abortion pills I think are for that reason, much more promising. And Garland did say that he he thinks, you know, the FDA here preempts state law, but I think that's not open and shut. I think there's no, a savings clause. There's a savings clause in the statute. Yeah. So they might need to amend the statute to to put in that it's like a federal supremacy, that there is like preemption here, which would be something that that would be um should be unobjectionable, but of course like mm-hmm. This is something they could have done a year ago, right? Like they just missed so many opportunities here already. I wanted to say also that, um, Peter, you might have mentioned repealing the Hyde Amendment as part of the stuff that um, AOC proposed in terms of like short term what the Democrats could do right now if they got their shit together. I just want to kind of emphasize or underscore the importance of repealing the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment is a federal law that was passed just a few years after Roe versus Wade happened. I want to say 1976 or 1977, the Hyde Amendment was passed. um, And the Hyde Amendment says that federal funds 
cannot be used to fund abortions, right? So say somebody is on Medicaid, they can't get an abortion care covered on Medicaid because those are federal funds. And funding um, public clinics like, say, a Planned Parenthood or a another abortion provider, right? Um, these places can't take federal money because the federal government can't do that based on the Hyde Amendment. Um, so I just wanted to say, just in terms of like using federal funds to back this up, um, to back up this response, the repealing of the Hyde Amendment is pretty essential. So that should be a first priority um, for Democrats. Right. And it's important to remember also, and this is sort of a tangent, but the Hyde Amendment is something that Democrats have leaned on to sort of like seem as if they are pro-life in some regards for the right. last 50 yeah. years, being able to say, well, yes, it's a, it's a constitutional right, but we we won't put federal funds to it, right? It's a way of hedging. It's something that a lot of moderate and conservative Democrats leaned on throughout the years to sort of show that they weren't like pro-abortion per se. And it's now biting them in the ass where, you know, the primary source of leverage that the Democrats have right now, the federal government, uh, cannot be deployed to protect abortion rights. Yeah. I mean, I would call it an own goal, but that sort of undersells how much of it was driven by people who genuinely just don't give a shit about reproductive rights. Yeah. Yeah. The the other thing I'll say about the Hyde Amendment is that like uh, military bases, uh, contra other federal lands, don't really have this issue with like state level, uh, state level crime jurisdiction and all, all the um, you know sticky issues we were just discussing, and they do perform abortions on federal bases and are going to continue doing so. But because they're limited by the Hyde Amendment, it's only in cases of the pregnant person is in danger of dying or serious health complications, right. and and that's right. it. That's right. So it's very limiting. Very, very limiting. So those were all uh, proposals basically about how the federal government could be responding. Um, yes. And of course, I think we can all agree the Democrats are doing everything they can. They're doing a great job. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> They're on it. Go blue, no matter who. <laughs> Another thing that, that happened this week as well is we saw a couple of states propose projects like the West Coast Offense and other. Mm-hmm. Great name. Great banding. <laughs> to try and protect abortion access. Yeah. I think Democrats might be rediscovering federalism. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, does anyone want to take that up? Yeah, I, I think that's I mean, it's an important development, especially with Hyde Amendment in play. You know, you, you look at something like at home abortion pills and you think, well, how could we get this to as many people as possible? And if the federal government can't do it, uh, if the Biden administration can't do it, if Congress can't do it, then who does that leave? And I think there is room there for ambitious states who want to sort of take up this mantle and not just serve their own population, but the broader country. I think there's like room in the over the span of the next decade, not just in this space, but overall for the liberal and left ish uh, leaning states to sort of make the case that they are the better states to live in. Mm -hmm. And I think that this could be part of it. Right. Um, Providing what looks somewhat like uh, mutual aid to uh, people who are seeking abortions uh, and at least some level of protection to people seeking abortions in your state um, and perhaps providing access to people outside of your state. I think that we're in a situation where there aren't a lot of great options, um, and it's hard to call that a great option, but it's certainly a good and compelling one when you look at the alternatives. 
Yeah, I also, I do think this moment, not just Roe, but just this court in general, uh, like the guns case, for example, as well, is a real moment for any state level legislators and governors that want to make a name for themselves by being like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to pass a handgun ban, right? Like of the type that was, you know, Wasn't disapproved. Wasn't floated in California? What happened? Yeah. To do the SB8 handgun. <laughs> yeah. And just be like, fuck you. We're going to do it. We're going to, we're going to pass it and we're going to enforce it. And uh, we're going to get as many guns off the street as we can until you try to tell us to stop. And then we're going to try to get, we're going to fight that tooth and nail. Right. And the same thing with this, like you can, you could go to the mat hard right now for um, making it as easy as possible for people to come to your state uh, to, to get abortions, um, to making funding available, you know, free clinics, whatever, right? Like there's a, there's a real opportunity to make a name for yourself. Um, if you are ambitious, maybe based Gavin Newsom will be our, our the hero of the, <laughs> of the post row moment. I don't, God, I don't know. What a terrible country! Right? Yeah. Gavin Newsom the, plays Davis. The standard right now is the floor. Yeah, yeah. That's why I moved. I was so concerned about Imperator Newsom seizing the whole Western watershed. <laughs> You're like, I gotta get up the Mountain West. It's not safe. It's not safe. I played Fallout New Vegas. I know where this goes. <laughs> So those are next steps for right now. That's the short term. A lot of people have been asking as well about what battles we think we're going to anticipate in the wake of Roe, sort of these collateral issues, these healthcare issues that are going to arise now that the uh, federal right to an abortion has been overturned. Um, I think, Rhiannon, you have some material prepared for this as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, just kind of what legal battles like we're anticipating now, now that Roe has been overturned. You know, I talked in the emergency episode about how overturning Roe really didn't clarify anything in terms of what the law is, because it actually created a complicated legal maze, even in states that are sure that they want to ban abortions, it created a lot of legal questions that are left in the wake of Roe being overturned. You know, first of all, I think surveillance and investigating who is getting an abortion and when in terms of criminalization of abortion, I think those are really going to be a new legal battleground for sure. And people are going to be put in really precarious positions based on who they're dealing with, who they're talking to about their abortion, who they are um, going to for aftercare and those kinds of things. You don't want a situation where healthcare providers, doctors are literally turned into cops because they're reporting on people's miscarriages. They're reporting to law enforcement on pregnancy outcomes that they suspect might be as a result of abortion, right? And then in addition, you know, I I think a big upcoming legal battle across the states really is going to be what counts as an abortion, depending on where you are, right? So if you are receiving care for an ectopic pregnancy, in many ways, that is an abortion. If you are receiving care for a miscarriage that doesn't leave your body, that is a a type of abortion, right? If you don't get that abortion care, many times that puts a pregnant person's life in danger. Um, And so what counts as an abortion and when 
is going to be kind of the next legal frontier for sure, as well as like what contraceptions count as abortion. Peter, I think, mentioned in the emergency episode that certain forms of contraception, conservatives have always tried to say that they are abortive, that they do what an abortion um, does inside of you. Of course, scientifically, most contraception doesn't do that. But But they stop the magic. They stop the magic from happening. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) What conservatives define as being an abortion, right, is going to like hold a lot of sway and have a lot of power if you're in an abortion restrictive state. We've already talked about medication abortion and what the next legal battlegrounds are there. I just want to mention, and hopefully we say it a couple of times over the course of this recording, that people who are looking into medication abortion, whether or not they can get it in their state, should visit plancpills.org. Again, that's plancpills.org. And there's information about medication abortion on that website. Let's see. Other legal battles. Trigger laws. Um, Louisiana had a trigger law that was supposed to go into effect immediately. Of course, a trigger law is a law that's on the books in many states that said that once Roe v. Wade was overturned, that abortion would be banned in that state. Um, I think people, reproductive justice advocates and other organizations are really looking to challenge the entire legal framework, the entire restrictive uh, abortion restrictive legal framework, which includes trigger laws. So in Louisiana, there was already a lawsuit about the trigger law there, and a state court blocked the trigger law from going into effect. So abortion right now in Louisiana is still accessible because the trigger law has not been triggered. A court blocked that from happening. Even more in terms of um, next legal battles, you know, would be what state constitutions have said historically about the right to an abortion. So I think just today in Mississippi, abortion rights activists and, and advocates got a ruling from a state court in Mississippi based on a 1998 court ruling, Supreme Court of Mississippi ruling, that said that abortion was a right under the state constitution in Mississippi. This case had sort of long been forgotten. Abortion rights activists brought it up and said, hey, there might not be a federal constitutional protection for abortion, but our state constitution protects it. And this court has said that, right? So for now, abortion restrictions in Mississippi are also put on hold, which is fantastic because this state court has said, no way, the state constitution guarantees this right. So there will be battles about what state constitutions have to say about abortions now. Can I can I hop in really quick? Yeah, go ahead. And a lot of uh, state Supreme Courts are elected positions. They're not appointed positions. And so in a number of these states, uh, there are, uh, you know, judges on the ballot in the next few months that will uh, be determinative of whether or not abortion is protected in like, I think, Ohio, North Carolina, trying to remember where else, maybe Pennsylvania. Uh, There are some people putting together like some pretty good lists of where all these high leverage races are. Yeah. When, when we have some that we are like uh, very confident in, we will be sharing them. In the meantime, I I would check out, uh, you know, Daniel on Twitter, like Daniel, but with a T. Yeah. He does a lot of good stuff uh, on this, if you're interested in that. Yeah. 
We also got a question already. Anna in the chat said, are you aware of efforts to get defense attorneys up to speed on the mechanics of abortions and other medical issues or the legal issues with existing abortion restrictions? So I am aware that reproductive justice organizations are preparing for this, but they are figuring out right now the mechanics of all of this as well. Like I said, this like legal chaos that has been created by Roe v. Wade being overturned has meant that a lot of these organizations have had to put their services on hold and figure out, go in and figure out who is liable for what, who is being criminalized, if at all, you know, all of this stuff. But I would say to get in touch with a local reproductive justice organization, get on a newsletter, right? There will be trainings and sort of legal education for law students and lawyers about what is needed and about the new sort of legal framework on abortion in the various states. You know, in terms of other legal battles that are upcoming, there's still more, right? It kind of can't be overstated what a mess and a monumental shift in the law overturning Roe versus Wade was, right? Mm -hmm. Like we've said, people have relied on this decision and Roe v. Wade being the law of the land for the past 50 years. Um, And so this, um, this marks a really huge shift. We know from Justice Thomas's concurrence that he is ready to overturn cases like Obergefell, Lawrence, Griswold. Those are cases that ensure your right to contraception, your right to have sex in the way that you please with the person you please. And of course, Obergefell is same-sex marriage. Justice Thomas has said in his concurrence that those cases should go, that substantive due process rights basically aren't real. And so, you know, they always know who their audience is. Justice Thomas knows who he's talking to, which is a conservative base, a conservative legal movement that is primed to bring those challenges, right? A challenge to Obergefell, a challenge to Lawrence, a, a challenge to Griswold. And where the Supreme Court takes it from here is really um, is really up in the air. And it's quite scary. Last thing I'll say, if you live in a state with abortion restrictions, is it legal to, um, to send to abortion funds in that state? Or, you know, what about like criminalizing travel, all of these things? Just in terms of like personal liability, I think you'll find you should take the lead and take the word of abortion funds and mutual aid organizations that are trying to support people getting abortions. So I think I mentioned in the emergency episode that many uh, so like abortion funds in Texas have all for the time being stopped taking donations because that legal liability is really unclear in states that have or are adopting SB8 type laws, which are the laws that empower private citizens to sue anybody, right, who is aiding someone to get an abortion, something like an abortion fund or donating to an abortion fund could lead to your legal liability, right? So um, in those states, it's unclear, and you should take the cue from abortion funds and abortion providers in that state. And, uh, you know, one more frontier that um, needs to be figured out is um, other other federalism issues like criminalizing travel. Right. Other issues um, in terms of helping somebody in another state get an abortion, traveling to get an abortion, all of those. That's just another it's another legal battle. Um, Justice Kavanaugh and his concurrence for his part basically signaled that, you know, he thought restrictions on travel between states is unconstitutional. So it looks like they don't have the vote for that. But 
states are still going to try it. States are still going to push the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Missouri and Alabama already are are passing those laws. Yeah. Yeah, Missouri, Alabama, they have laws like that in the works. So, yeah, it is a legal um I keep saying it, but it is absolutely legal chaos and people should just be taking their cues and in touch with the reproductive justice organizations that are local to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a couple of folks asked in the uh, Slack as well, considering the moment, do we think that the dissent was adequate <laughs> or should it have gone harder? Should the I, dissent have been more epic? Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I think it went as hard as you could expect, uh, yeah. and, but still falling short, of course, of of where it could have gone. Right. I think that the, the case being made uh, in the Slack um, was a good one, which is that to the extent that all of the liberals positioning concerning stare decisis, precedent, all, all of these sort of institutionalist concerns, um, to the extent that that posturing has been building to something, um, surely it was this, right? And now is the time to sort of start letting loose some broader critiques of the institution. I agree with that. I think it would have been interesting and good to see institutional critiques coming from the lib justices. Was it something that we would have expected? No, no. I mean, we we often like sing Sotomayor's praises, for example. But, you know, she was out there the other day saying Justice Thomas is like a swell guy. Yeah, her you friend. Know, there's, there's only so much you can get out of these out of these people at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I saw one law professor who's very cynical about the Supreme Court still say like, oh, I think maybe someone balked. I, I think maybe the, the draft leaked opinion didn't hold the day. Mm-hmm. Because Sotomayor was so buoyant at this, you know, meeting and and talking up Thomas, and so maybe, nope, <laughs> that's, not, right. that's not what happened at all. That's just how they are. <laughs> like they really, they like each other, and they are like, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, everybody in that institution is is like at least somewhat rotten. Unfortunately, yeah. even the best of them, yeah. Brains damaged by years of uh, being a judge. Yeah. I do think also like sort of Scalia. (laughs) Shut up. It's a great introduction for everyone. Yeah. To uh, recording. To to recording with Michael uh, where he fends off his dogs for a good chunk of it. Uh, What was I going to say? I think we've all been brain damaged a bit by like the Scalia discourse too for years where his like snarkiness and his little shots are like what defines what makes something powerful. I I don't think there's like a great value in being epic, you know, quote unquote, at a moment like this. I think you want to be powerful in the sense that like you want to speak plainly. You want to, you want to write in a way that is accessible to any reader and has like a lot of moral force. But uh, beyond that, like, uh, I don't know. I I think there's like too much emphasis put on that sort of thing. Uh, What I want to see out of dissents is, yeah, speaking with some moral clarity and outlining a vision of the constitution and building the political power then to enact that vision. Yeah, Those are the three things I want to see. And the justices can only do two of those three things. Uh, so, you know, that that last step, building political power, isn't really on them regardless. 
another question that's frequently asked in the chat was, what should the goal of the progressive legal movement be beyond just getting Roe back in place or codifying Roe? How do we go beyond Roe in this moment? Yeah, that that's a great question. I think mandatory abortions. <laughs> everybody, everybody. <laughs> you have to get at least one. Um, no, I, I think that like the real answer to that is without Roe, we're sort of only limited by our imagination in terms of what we want to see uh, reflected in the law, right? Um, there, there, there was this discrete thing that we were defending in the constitutional right to an abortion. Without that, you can conceptualize it as broader, right? You can conceptualize it as um, a much broader conception of access to reproductive rights or a much broader con- uh, conception of a- uh, access to personal autonomy. I think those are things that we should be thinking about. And frankly, pro- the, you know, the, the academic movement should have been thinking about f- for a long time. But I, I think it's it's worth noting that when you lose something like this, you know, you're not just trying to get it back, right? We shouldn't be limited by that. We should be thinking about what a broad understanding of not just a the right to privacy, but of you know reproductive rights more broadly would look like. Uh, of you know, don't care. <laughs> I don't know who said that. <laughs> Let's keep that in the episode. <laughs> oh, let's keep but, that in. I agree, hat. sir. But, uh, right. Please mute your microphone. But I agree. <laughs> I'm just going to take just a second here and overstep my role as the moderator to brag on Vermont codifying a constitutional amendment later this year, codifying specifically a right to reproductive justice, essentially reproductive mm-hmm. bodily autonomy. Not that it matters because there's only half a million of us, but it could be a model for other constitutional amendments or statutes in the future. That's what small experimental states like Vermont are for, you know? That's exactly right. <laughs> experimental uh, amendments and experimental psychedelic drugs. That's uh, really the, the laboratories of democracy. Um, Honestly, the access to the latter of those is really overstated here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I know. Unfortunately, <laughs> from personal experience. Uh, <laughs> I guess I just wanted to add to that, to Peter's point, which I think was well stated. Oh, here, one sec. My wife is home and taking the dogs out of here, so we'll have some peace and quiet. That will answer one question that we had, which was, how's Michael's wife? Better. <laughs> Better. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Yeah, I think I think it's like dream big. This is a dream big moment um, because there are a lot of conversations that we should have been having for the last 20 years, right? In the wake of Bush v. Gore, in the wake of Citizens United, in the wake of all these cases that we talk about on this podcast about not just how much we dislike the conservative vision for America, but what we think our vision should be, right? These are conversations that we should have been having. By we, I mean legal uh, left, elite political left, uh, you know, thinkers. But it's seems like we're finally at this point where we're starting to have these conversations and that's good, but that that's a moment to think big, right? That's a moment to think broadly about what, uh, you know, the 14th and 15th amendments um, mean and the, the liberty they protect. I don't know. I think it's a time to be ambitious, right? Uh, it, people are being radicalized. People are talking themselves into all sorts of uh, more extreme things and becoming fluent in the legal politics in the way they haven't been. Um, yeah. 
So it's a, it's like a good uh, organizing moment. Not not that I want to say any one specific thing so much as that this is precisely how we should be thinking is like yeah. ambitiously. Right. right now is the time to be ambitious. Yeah, exactly. Do we think that this is going to change how the media covers the Supreme Court? Michael, I think because you're the host, you can mute that person. Oh, I don't know who it is. There's oh, like it's s- Pat. It's on the bottom. But once again, Pat, I think we all agree. Unbelievable, Pat. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting question is like, is there going to be a market change in how the media talks about the court, right? I think it's worth noting that like, it's easy to forget that one year ago, the media coverage of the court was centered around like its moderation and the idea that it was a 3-3-3 court with, a, with an identifiable left, right, and center. And whatever you want to say about the court coverage now, it's it's less credulous than that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there has been a shift. The institutionalists will, of course, continue to humiliate themselves. <laughs> um, but I do think that it seems like there's going to be a shift in how the press covers the court, um, that there sort of has to be, that it's so nakedly political, that the stakes are so intertwined with politics that you can no longer separate the two in any meaningful way. So I don't think we know exactly how like mainstream media is going to address it is going to talk about the court moving forward but i have a hard time believing that they're going to like immediately revert back to what they were doing last year i think it certainly some nuance has been introduced in their minds i think that's right and i also think that because it's so recent that the trump nominees um were appointed to the supreme court i think that the media has a memory of it, right? There's there's a memory that can be pointed to, like a concrete reality that Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett all said under oath that Roe v. Wade was important precedent in this country and that because of stare decisis, it shouldn't be overturned, right? And so, you know, the media at least remembers that. And it's easy to point to as like, well, you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth here. I think it helps that like politicians like Ilhan Omar, AOC, obviously, are pointing out these things, too, and saying it in the media. And I think um, those kinds of easy, like A to B lines that can be drawn are really important in terms of like the media coverage and um, the media's tone around around these issues. I will say Noah Feldman, who is a frequent topic of deserved derision, (laughs) did say this week that the Supreme Court committed political suicide when it did this, which is funny because it is not not, true yet. Not not yet true. (laughs) Right. Nor is the court political. How dare he? I mean, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Noah Feldman really disagrees with Noah Feldman about that. Right. The Supreme Court will be losing the next election. (laughs) It would also be very funny because like how much would Noah Feldman protest were Democrats to do anything to actually (laughs) give force (laughs) to that political suicide, right? Like expand the court. Oh my, that is, that is worse than overturning Roe v. Wade, right? I fucking What's worse than losing your reproductive rights? Cantankerousness. (laughs) That's that's right. Political strife. Loss of civility. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we've had a couple questions in the chat that came up while we were discussing all the legal issues surrounding this. Conrad asked, how serious is the threat of overturning other right to privacy cases like Lawrence versus Texas and other cases that relied on that sort of eminence from the yeah. penumbras of the right to privacy? Mm-hmm. I would say quite. Um, 
I think it's I think it's really seriously in jeopardy. You know, Michael mentioned this in the emergency episode. In the moment, I think Michael, you said something funny, which is that they might outlaw cheating on your wife, um, (laughs) (laughs) which is funny. But I think what what you were getting at, right, or like um, sex before marriage, you also mentioned. But what you're getting at is, yeah, those private sort of individual decisions about who you spend your time with, who you have sex with, who you're intimate with, all of those privacy rights are absolutely in danger um, because that's what Lawrence is about. Lawrence was a case that struck down a Texas law, an anti-sodomy law that said, you know, people can't have sex in this way. And it criminalized those specific sex acts. And the Supreme Court in Lawrence said, that's unconstitutional. This law can't stand because of the 14th Amendment, because of substantive due process rights. And again, like, you know, we're not trying to be like overly alarmist or anything like that. It's just like, look at the Dobbs decision. Like Justice Clarence Thomas is saying, I would overturn Lawrence. And he probably has votes that would um, maybe at least, at least there's four votes to at least give cert Mm -hmm. to that kind of question. Um, Who knows if there are five votes for it, but yeah, um, I mean, it's close enough that you should be worried if if it's productive. Yeah. It's also a situation where like, it's probably easier to identify what's safe. The right to interracial marriage is probably safe. I I think, I I think that's fair to say that no one's likely to challenge it. If they do, it's unlikely to get up to the Supreme Court. If it got up to the Supreme Court, they would, um, they would say that, um, that interracial marriage is is a protected right one way or another. I would say that there's an argument to be made. I think I've mentioned it before that perhaps they don't have five to overturn gay marriage. You know, this is a pretty optimistic take. So this isn't really my view as much as what's the optimistic take on this. Perhaps the equal protection argument would persuade Gorsuch or Kavanaugh in a case challenging Obergefell. Am I confident in that? Not really. You know, clearly you have at least a couple votes to, to overturn. So I think that to some degree it's inevitable that these rights are under attack. The only question is exactly how it plays out, what's safe, what's not. I think that the savvy take that I sort of agree with is that Lawrence that said you have a right basically to do what you want in your bedroom, that is most likely to fall Yeah. of that line of cases. I think that's right. You think Lawrence is the most likely to fall? I do. I do. Oh, I think it's the least likely to fall. Why do you think it's the least likely to fall? I think it's going to be the most politically toxic of the, of them. I think mm. so. I think they would rather get rid of gay marriage than they would a decision that potentially impacts even their own voters or whatever. Yeah. I think it's the politics of it's too too off. If there's one thing that we know about this court is that they are beholden to the political will of the American people. <laughs> <laughs> Owned by the moderator. Oh, my God. Hey, James. <laughs> look, I have been very vocal ahead of my time about the willingness of this court to explicitly overturn Roe v. Wade, not just kill it by death. You you were ahead of your time. You were. Yeah, you you really were. I don't think I can be accused of underestimating the willingness to court the wrath of public opinion, but I don't think they're going to go to Lawrence. I think they'll go to Obergefell first. Fair enough. I will say you won't know that you're living in a post-Lawrence world until you are living in a post-Lawrence world. The way that Lawrence gets in front of the court is that a state arrests someone for sodomy again. That's right. yeah, right. that's right. Right. Um, I did uh, 
fuck, I had a thought and I lost it. What were we just talking about? This is another, this is another important part of recording with Michael. Yeah. <laughs> he will say that he lost his thought and then you move on and then he will say, I remembered it. Back. What was the prompt here? What was the prompt here? I don't the, remember. The prompt, the prompt was like, how serious is a challenge yes. to Lawrence going to be? Yes. Thank you, Rhiannon. And yes, I think the reason to take these seriously is, is um, look, you can look at uh, Heller, right? The case that uh, first said there's an individual right to bear arms. And in yeah. it, Scalia lists a whole bunch of like common sense gunny regulations that, of course, would not be forbidden by this ruling. And they are all currently in question in light of the uh, gun ruling just the other day. In Citizens United, the same case where they you know opened up our election to uh, you know the free flow of money, they also reaffirmed the importance of uh, disclosure laws. And those are all in question in light of recent Supreme Court cases. You know, in the span of a decade, uh, cases that had these sort of moderating, reasonable, you know, parts to them. Yeah, we're letting money in, but you have to know who's uh, giving all this money. Yeah, we're saying there's a right to bear arms, but there are all these common sense regulations you can still do. Those are all in question, if not, you know, at this point, a fait accompli that they're that they're done, right? I, I think 10 years of a 6-3 court, and we will be looking at the assurances in this case in very much the same way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Amanda in the chat also asked, I think we touched on it briefly, but more explicitly, are we worried about possible legal battles surrounding IVF and other reproductive issues, sort of the positive side of reproductive justice as well? I, I, look, I don't want to like call anyone out, but I wouldn't say like the positive side in terms of like, I think I don't want to frame abortions as like that negative side. Um, you wouldn't want to call me out as the moderator. Did you say that? <laughs> I, I I'm that the was, one who framed it as the positive side and sort of uh, like the, yeah, you, but you're, I accept your criticism. I take it. I, I, I accept Be it. better, James. Do better. <laughs> I will do better. But yes, um, I think IVF is very much in jeopardy in a lot of these states, right? I mean, the same sort of movement that's driving this, uh, setting aside the legal ease, right? Uh, believes that like a fertilized embryo is a life and and that's going to be, you know, they're going to want to organize around that. They're going to want to fight on that. Of course it's in danger. It's very much, it's very much in danger. I will say my wife is a healthcare reporter uh, in an Arizona trade publication and she interviewed a lot of IVF doctors in the last few years and none of them were worried about it for some reason. I couldn't tell you why. <laughs> that is insane. Doesn't seem like that train that's coming down the tracks is headed towards me. <laughs> that's that's incredible. One that's of the incredible. biggest problems with healthcare today is that most practitioners do not listen to five to four. Mm. And if they that's did, a big problem. they would have known. It's a major problem. Yeah, there you go. If you're a doctor and you're listening right now, Thank you for being a subscriber to the Patreon. You should subscribe <laughs> at a higher level. Yeah. You should donate what you can afford. Let's establish a doctor level. And then I think sort of a wrap-up question on Dobbs specifically, although, of course, if we want to keep talking about Dobbs later, I think that's fine. Yeah, we can always circle back. What are the worst post-Dobbs takes that we've seen? We asked this question <laughs> of the Slack, so we've we got quite a bit of responses. Yeah. But if anything, we should go around the table. Yeah. All right. I, I will start because I have a couple in mind because I saw this question. I think the on from the left, um, the, you know, I'm doing air quotes. 
you have um, David Cole, the legal director at the ACLU, uh, immediately releasing an opinion piece (laughs) where he opposes court packing as a solution. And (laughs) I mean, we've talked about court reform enough that like we don't need to rehash it here. But I just despise people who like bear witness to widespread distress and calls for action and choose to react by throwing cold water on any talk of change for reform and like immediately trying to tamper with the response in some way. Mm -hmm. It's also sort of cheating to mention right-wingers, but Ross Douthat's um, column in The Times, where he said that uh, Republicans can use this opportunity to prove that they care about women by like passing legislation that provides for a robust social safety net for mothers. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, but that it's almost it's almost like he is completely unaware of what his ideology actually is uh, and what it what it means. I saw a clip of I think Peggy Noonan making like a similar <laughs> argument on Meet the Press and literally like uh, Chuck Todd and the other panelists like laughing in her face and her like talking over them laughing and they're just like laughing at her. She's like, no, I'm serious. <laughs> just, like, it, I mean, it's a truly embarrassing thing to think yeah. that like. Yeah, it's very interesting. I've seen takes also from conservatives that's like, well, you know, now it's time to be actually pro-life, right? Like let's support yeah. mothers and stuff like that and give paid parental leave, you know, all of these policies that would be good for like um, young families. It's not the case that like abortion being legal kept conservatives from doing all of that stuff. So there's no right. So there's absolutely no reason to take them seriously. Like they do not care about this. If they cared about it as a value, they could have stood by that value before. Right. Um, But they do not. That's exactly right. It's as simple as that. The log cabin Republicans. (laughs) The log cabin cabin Republicans, which is the, the gay Republican group, they quoted some ridiculous op-ed we can and should have a robust debate over abortion rights but let's do it without needlessly scaring people that other core rights are under attack when they simply (laughs) are not (laughs) yeah bro good luck with that one like literally fought tooth and nail against your ability to marry Five years ago, like or like, even have intimate contact with your partner right. in in your home, like they want to throw you in jail for that. Good luck, have fun. God, yeah. Is there a more cucked organization than the Log Cabin Republicans? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think you guys are really denigrating an organization that cares about our civil liberties <laughs> and not paying taxes. <laughs> uh. There are so many bad takes on this. Literally just log on Twitter. So like yeah. as much yeah. as I appreciate the spirit of the question, like you yeah. can get brain poison any day you want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or every day if you want. That's what yeah. I do. That's right. That's <laughs> just that's it. Right just the... open up that phone and scroll. <laughs> <laughs> right to the dome, baby. <laughs> that's the devil talking. <laughs> So obviously, this is the big news of the past week. Um, there have been a lot of really bad decisions for the past week. It's been pretty bad. Um, yeah. So I think we might want to turn to some of the non-Dobbs related questions that we've received. One of the ones that a lot of folks are asking is, are there any progressive or left legal groups that are trying to build something to fight the Federalist Society, a weapon that could surpass Metal Gear? 
that are worth contributing to or working with? How can we organize against the Federalist Society? God, I regret saying yes to you as moderator. You know, <laughs> I've actually never p- played any of the Metal Gear Solid games. I just figured that when that hits the episode, that's going to hit a demographic that you're not really hitting right now. I think there you go. I, on James purpose, is- on purpose, James, we're not hitting that demographic. I think we've reached a maximum number of mentions for any kind of gaming thing for this session. If we could, James, I think that's enough. Um, I like it. For you. Um, yeah, the question about like a, a left counterpart to the Federalist Society, there is not something that is big enough or powerful enough to counter the power of the Federalist Society right now. That problem is due to a lot of factors. One is that the Federalist Society is backed by huge private donors, um, and there isn't a reciprocal sort of leftist, massive billionaire donor base, right, um, that is willing to put their time and money uh, behind uh, such a project, behind an ideological project like that. Um, you know, one thing to look at, though, is there are um, the National Lawyers Guild, NLG. They have local chapters across the country. It is truly a progressive and and um, left legal organization. They can do, like, uh, continuing legal education and other stuff. There will be student chapters at law schools, all of that. Um, that's a good organization to work with and contribute to. But it is definitely small, right? Right. Underfunded um, and nowhere near uh, nowhere near the Federalist Society in terms of um, networking, sharing ideas, promoting judicial appointments, that kind of thing. Yeah. National Lawyers Guild, NLG, National Lawyers Guild. I have to pitch People's Parity Project because we are. Oh, that's right. That's right. Of course. Uh, Which I, I think they are probably. The closest thing to an organization that is really trying, I mean, they're also small, but they are trying to build something that looks at least to a degree like the Federalist Society. Mm-hmm. I think they're they're starting with sort of organizing in law schools, et cetera. Um, and I think doing as, as good of a job as, as anyone, but, um, you know, the left has a natural disadvantage relative to the right in that like effective organizations tend to be identified and captured by powerful interests, right? Like ACS was. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to say that it was captured is probably to um, undersell what actually happened, which is that it was started by powerful interests too. But <laughs> That's right. yeah. on the right, that sort of capture is actually a benefit, right? Because their movement right. is designed and intended to serve powerful interests. So when you get captured, it's like, perfect. This is, <laughs> everything's, <laughs> everything's lining up. Um, but on the left, it's a conflict, um, which is why organizing something on the scale of the Federalist Society is so difficult. And I'm not sure that it should be our goal because I don't think that it's a realistic goal for that reason. I think what's important is that a large number of left lawyers and law students and activists are for the first time looking at the law and the courts with a unified and coherent ideological purpose, right? That's always the starting point. We were pretty early to the lefty court coverage media space, but the space is growing and increasingly visible. I think that there is reasons for optimism. Right. Yeah. And just to take the opportunity to plug again, People's Parity Project um, is a great, fairly new organization. They're having their annual conference in just a couple weeks um, in it's DC. It's a convening. And convening. <laughs> it's a convening, um, yeah. It's yeah. Convening. In just a couple weeks. <laughs> if I you go expecting a, a conference, you will <laughs> be gonna pissed be. off. Um, yeah. Can you not interrupt me anymore? <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
the the um, they have their convening in a couple of weeks. I think it's July eighth through the tenth, and we will be there. It's in DC, um, and we will be there. So check out peoplesparity.org. Check out their convening if you're in the DC area, um, and yeah, maybe come see us. Yeah. And there was a question specifically in the chat from Chris asking whether it's feasible to consider sort of the same style and project as the Federalist Society. That's sort of like conscious effort to build a parallel, almost deep state legal movement mm-hmm. that supplies all of the uh, judges, legal appointees. Right. And Michael, I know you wanted to answer that. Yeah, I, I do. I think it's a worthwhile project. But I think there's something to uh, always have in mind here, which is understanding why the Republican Party and the Federal Society and the conservatives did what they did. They focused on the least democratically responsive branch of government uh, for a reason. They focused on the branch of government with lifetime appointments for a reason. And they are very focused on very anti-democratic policies right now for a reason, which is that they know the agenda they're pushing is massively unpopular. The left is not saddled with that. You don't have to spend 50 years trying to, in secret, gain control of these institutions so you can act enact some shitty agenda that the population doesn't like. Roe v. Wade's popular, right? <laughs> like the Voting Rights Act is popular. Like the things the left wants to do with the courts are broadly speaking popular and you don't have to worry about that, right? Like you can be more aggressive and work on a much more accelerated timeline and do it out in the open uh, because you have the mandate of the public behind you. That's important. So no, we don't have to spend 50 years regaining the federal courts the same way the Republicans did because uh, we're not trying to do the regressive, massively unpopular shit they are, right? Yeah. That is a response I've seen from a lot of sort of like gormless centrists online. Well, what do you expect? Uh, It's going to take 30, 40 years to undo. It took them 50 years to do. No, fuck that. Like, we don't need to wait 40 years to undo this that is that is absurd the idea that that is ridiculous like anybody who says that get them the fuck out of your life like they have no they've like nothing useful to say to you about politics uh at all like period yeah no we can be much more aggressive and much more ambitious because we have you know the mandate of heaven with us <laughs> <laughs> That's not a video game reference. I just no, wanna, I want to make that clear. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That is, it was the subtitle of Heroes 2 Might and Magic's oh expansion. <laughs> James, James, this is going to be an episode of five to four. Well, is it? That's our decision to make. <laughs> yeah. It's 1998's best strategy game. Lord have mercy. Should have gotten Jay Willis to moderate. <laughs> it was it was James or Jay. <laughs> I like the choice we went with. Lesson learned. <laughs> That's right. I'm enjoying my first and last dip back into the world of legal podcasting. Uh, Randall earlier in the chat asks, I noticed you haven't said stop what you're doing and go to law school. Why is that? 
for the record, all the hosts just chortled. <laughs> um, that's a good question. And it leads into like what people, what lawyers and non-lawyers could be doing in this moment. Um, yeah, we're not saying go to law school because we don't believe that like lawyers are the solution, right? The solutions that we need as a society, as a country, as people in community with the oppressed and marginalized, what we need is organizing. What we need is action on the ground, protest and solidarity, um, mutual aid, right? Um, that's what we need uh, to build power. I think somebody in the chat put it really nicely. It's about building power, not policy, right? Mm -hmm. We need to build people power and organize, and that's how we get the results that we want. You can't rely on the yearly new batch of law students uh, <laughs> to, to graduate and do anything because look where that's led us, right? Um, this is lawyers at the heart of this conservative legal movement. This is judges. Um, and so going to law school is not necessarily a solution. It's joining into a system that has done this, that has led to this. But then, so turning to what can people do um, other than go to law school, non-lawyers and lawyers alike should be taking their cues for what to do from local organizations, wherever you are. Um, you should be you should be learning if they have community organizing, community political education, joining with a local lefty group. But even more importantly than that, um, taking your cues from organizers, from reproductive justice advocates and organizations, they have stuff on Instagram, online, asking people to volunteer. Michael, you mentioned volunteering for an organization in New Mexico that helps people coming from Texas to get mm -hmm. abortions, right? Yeah. Depending on where you are, you can offer to house people who are coming into the state to get abortions. Yeah. It's absolutely about people power, about organizing where you are, about doing things locally that the advocates are saying um, they need in order to build that power and that solidarity and, and keep things moving on the ground. You know, people are saying that like in this new sort of surveillance chaos, saying publicly, I will aid and abet abortion could make you liable wherever you are. Right. Um, so um, so just uh, taking those cues from those local organizations is going to be really important depending on where you are, because they're going to be able to tell you what is legal, what's not legal and and what they need. Mm hmm. I'll only add to that that from like a personal perspective, not that lawyers can't do any good or don't do any good. Certainly many of them do. Taking three years and $200,000 uh, to try to do a, a little bit of good is not a great investment. Um, you know, if if you want to be a lawyer as a career, then sure, maybe it's the right move. Yeah. Um, but if your goal is to help people, um, to foster change, it's an incredibly, truly roundabout way to do it. Um, yeah. And really sort of beside the point, right? Helping people is something that um, you can do if you're a lawyer and you can do if you're not. Um, and so mm -hmm. going to law school for that purpose because you think you'll be better at it um, is something you should think twice about. I would I'll just say that. Yeah. yeah I mean – I'm not going to tell anyone that there's like no value in going to law school, but if you're going to go to any professional school right now, because you believe in the importance of reproductive freedom, I would think it would be medical school. Also, yeah, you don't need a law degree to drive someone to an abortion clinic yeah. or to house someone who's yeah. coming from out of state. For the most part, I mean, you don't need expertise to do no. these things. And it's, right. it's counterproductive to think that you do. You just need a big heart. Right. right. Exactly. Maybe you need 
to sacrifice a little bit. Um, but you don't need to be an expert in anything. Yeah. Just really quickly want to underscore what M just put in the chat, which is really important. They said it's important to not just go join into your local lefty group this week, go a couple times and then drop out. These problems will require concerted and consistent work. That's really important to keep in mind, too. We're not saying like volunteer once with an organization, right? Mm-hmm. Because what we're what we're up against is 40, 50 years of a conservative legal movement. That was concerted effort, right? Um, that was ideological coalescence around a shared project. And so when when I say do something local, that's the same thing, but it takes real commitment because mm-hmm. um, that's what we're up against. Yeah, I, I will point out that there's a lot of people in the chat arguing about which socialist group is best to join. <laughs> Classic left wingers. This is always happens. <laughs> just any of them. Just any of them. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't don't worry about it. Yeah. I think this next question is a little more a little bit more lighthearted. Since this podcast succeeded with Stephen Breyer, who should we cyberbully into retirement next? This assumes a lot of power located in the five to four podcast <laughs> hey. and specifically right. the five to four podcast. Did anyone slack, else but- put out March? <laughs> saying Stephen Breyer retire, bitch. I think not. I think the answer to that is is pretty easy, and it is the entire security detail for Clarence Thomas, right? <laughs> That's right. What are you doing? <laughs> they can all retire en masse, like, right now. <laughs> um, I thought when I saw the Capitol Police marching out to protect the Supreme Court, I was like, why are we doing this? Just let right? them burn it down. I don't understand, yeah. the, I don't understand the issue. <laughs> or, or whatever. Or whatever. We will be cutting this from the episode. <laughs> We will not leave it in, Rachel. <laughs> this is one thing that people are usually not privy to, which is um, most of our episodes devolve into violent and illegal threats. And Rachel kindly takes them out. It's not a threat. It's just a... I think what James said was a threat. And um, <laughs> James is not part of our uh, LLC. Were <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys incorporated? That's a good move. Big time. Big time. <laughs> <laughs> I will answer this in a semi-serious way. We took the position, of course, that Stephen Breyer should retire um, long before he did, that it's relatively outrageous that he (laughs) was even on the court when Trump was elected for the first time. But now we're in a situation where all the liberals are um, going to at least going to be once Ketanji Brown Jackson is uh, officially on the court under the age of 70. That said, Kagan and Sotomayor are at a point where I don't think it's crazy to start thinking about whether or not they should retire, which, I mean, might seem hasty. And I think it is in a lot of ways it is. But the gamble when you are someone going into their 70s in a position uh, like this is significant. And I think that if we want to be consistent, then it needs to be said that once you're in a point in your life where there is a considerably higher chance that you die of natural causes then you should be thinking about retirement. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't say we're at a point yet where I would, you know, slam my fist on the table and say, so do I or retire. But it's it's a conversation that it's reasonable to have. The other thing I'll say that I think is like sort of uh, an interesting retrospective on the whole Briar thing was that there were a lot of people who were saying, you know, last year, like, relax, he's just going to retire next year. And that's fine. And he's taking this time because it'll help his retirement look less political and it'll help 
people's understanding of the court as an apolitical body. <laughs> and, and in the meantime, what's he risking, right? And of course, now the idea that the timing of Breyer's retirement would have any impact at all on how the public views the court is absurd, right? Because their decisions are so blatantly political that whether he retired last year or this year has nothing to do with it. Meanwhile, Senator from my state, Ben Ray Lujan, had a fucking stroke in February and luckily is fine. But the Democrats could have very easily, if that had been slightly worse, lost their ability to replace Stephen Breyer, right? Like this sort of cavalier attitude towards power persists even even after fucking Ginsburg's untimely passing still and, and still there are these savvy takes like no this is the right way to approach it rather than just like the cold hard politics of like take the opportunity when you have it right that's just like a little score i wanted to settle like fuck them you know ben ray luhan didn't die and stephen Breyer retired but so what like you got nothing out of that gamble mm -hmm. the net benefit was zero but the risk was tremendous, right? Yeah. Like it was a tremendous risk that was like substantially underrated. Noah Feldman, amongst many, can go fuck themselves. They were they were wrong and they continue to be wrong about these things. Turning to some of the other cases specifically that the court has decided, uh, how do we think that the bipartisan gun bill, gun rights bill, is going to fare against the uh, <laughs> New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case? And I will remind everyone that that is apparently what the Democrats were singing about yes. on the day that Roe was overturned. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. They were yes. really happy that they passed that bill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is there fucking, I mean, look red flag laws, the boyfriend loophole, all that shit. There's no, that's, that's all like modern interventions. There's no historical precedent for that at all. Of course, if the court decides they want to ax that, the test laid out in Bruin is ample ammunition. Yeah. No pun intended with the ammunition. Well, that's sort of the, the point. All the decision in Bruin is, is ammunition if they want to use it, right? Mm -hmm. The test that they laid out is essentially, well, Let's do originalism and see where it comes out, which means that they can cherry pick whatever history they feel like cherry picking. So if they want to strike down the gun law using Bruin, they absolutely could. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I mean, it's that should stood in the water if gun nuts decide they want it to be. And yeah. um, they don't seem that pleased with it, to be frank. So uh, I would not be bullish on the only like gun restrictions in that bill lasting more than a few years. And Lexi just asked what we think the timeline of striking down that gun bill would be. I think that's a that's a complex question because there's so many moving parts in it. Yeah, really hard to tell. It's really, really hard. hard to tell. It depends on how the lawsuit is brought, who brings the lawsuit and when. It depends on whether the court wants to hear oral arguments on it or whether they decide something on the shadow docket, right? It can really, really depend. Yeah, I mean, it legitimately could be done in a few months if they just said, you know, we're like, yeah. see Bruin and like sent a case back to the Fifth Circuit or whatever. Yeah. Or affirm the Fifth Circuit, um, as the case may be. But I think, you know, if this becomes like a cause of the gun nut right, uh, I would give it max four years maximum. Yeah. Probably less.
I, I saw a couple questions about the administrative state. Uh, because I work for a federally funded state agency, I'm not actually ethically allowed to think about my job going away. So I'm not going to ask those well, questions. Well, we should have waited two days for when uh, you know the agency does not technically exist. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think instead, you might move to the, the final question that I have for you all from the, uh, from the Slack, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, sure. Lori asked in the Slack, are you guys okay? <laughs> like mentally? Are we all good? Every night I need eight hours and I get seven and a half. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think I, I think I'm it's hard, right? It's hard out there. Um, and Lori, appreciate your question. Yeah. Uh, Lori's an OG um, five, four fan. She's been with us since our first Zoom. Do you know do you know who brought Lori to us is uh, Leon Nafok. She was. Oh, that's a, right. She's a she was a Leon fan first and foremost. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thanks, Lori, for the question. But um, yeah, I think it's really hard on the three of us to sort of like do our day jobs um, and then also be covering this really, you know, awful shit week in and week out. But I think at the same time, like it helps me to feel like I am bringing light to some of these issues that I'm centering impacted people in all of these cases that we talk about real world material consequences for oppressed and marginalized people when when we're talking about these cases, right? That helps me kind of deal with it that like that we're doing something that that frankly other media outlets and other podcasts just aren't um regarding the supreme court so i like our little niche space that we've carved out for ourselves i think it actually helps my mental health a little bit um (laughs) because yeah i mean things can really lead to despair in this moment um but i remember i know i keep quoting her but mariam kaba says let this radicalize you rather than lead you to despair right you have to turn despair into action um because that's what's called for in this moment yeah i think that's well said and i'll i'll say on a more serious note for me that like I think a on a selfish level it can be cathartic um, because the, the shit happens regardless, yeah. Um, yeah. and you know we get to sort of vent about it and articulate our, our frustrations um, in a way that can feel cathartic. And I also feel like there's real solidarity in the community and um, that we've sort of fostered here, and that genuinely makes me feel better. And um, I feel like I'm talking week to week like people who are listening, right? We read their feedback. We see people talking to us, um, yeah. even if we can't always engage you know, on Twitter or whatever. But it feels like we've carved out some little community here that makes me feel better week to week. And I, I really do think that my, as miserable as some of this is, I feel like my mental health is actually probably better because of the podcast with respect oh, to sure. court shit than it would be. Yeah, I think that's right for me too. I don't know if I go that far. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's out here struggling, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it helps. It does. This stuff would be distressing regardless. It, it would. But I mean, I think it's tough because it's tough on all of us, right? Everybody's on this Zoom because they care. Uh, everybody's listening to this because they care. They care about their, you know, their neighbors. And this is kind of an ugly time to be living in. Right. And that's difficult. Yeah. That's going to be difficult regardless of whether or not you're hosting a podcast or listening to a podcast about it. So uh, we are grateful uh, for this community. Definitely, It gives you a little, a a little hope that uh, things will be a little better in the future. 
So thank you guys. So I think that's all the questions that I deemed worthy of pulling out of the chat. Um, <laughs> I, I will say I ignored a lot of your questions. And if I did ignore your question, it was on purpose. That's your question I thought didn't make the cut. I will say this. Usually we, are, we solicit questions for Q&As and they are awful. Like it's just the, the percentage of questions that are good is unbelievably low. And this time it was like the complete opposite. Tons yeah. of good questions. I've seen like literally dozens of questions that I wish we had time to answer. Uh, so good good work, everyone. Yeah, way to go. But maybe with our last couple of minutes here, should we talk a little Ginny Thomas? Ooh. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> Some Ginny news. Ginny, Ginny, Ginny. Hang on. Can you guys actually explain a little bit about why you think that I should testify as a January? Because <laughs> I know earlier I was like, Yes, I will come. But now I'm like, hold on a second. My lawyer has spoken with me. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So to explain this a bit, Ginny Thomas um, said last week, maybe two weeks ago, but kind of put out a statement that she was ready to testify. You know, if she was going to be called by the January 6th committee, mm-hmm. then she would answer. Um, that was kind of the the vibe that she put out. And then all of a sudden today, um, you know, she got counsel. She got a lawyer <laughs> and um, her lawyer is giving her a little bit different advice. Um, and the lawyer has said um, something to the effect of, to the committee, something to the effect of, oh, we need more rationale. Can you provide a little bit more justification for why Ginny Thomas's testimony would even be relevant here? So today was an interesting day for the January 6th committee. (laughs) Um, And I I imagine that she is simple. I, the, first of all, they they have not subpoenaed her. They requested her cooperation. Yeah, they requested an interview. Yeah. And as a result, she can therefore informally be like, well, what's this about? You know, what are, what are we doing here? The thing is that if you were in Ginny's shoes, you really have three routes. One is you cooperate. Two is you say, hey, fuck off, subpoena me. And three is this, where you ask for the justification with the primary goal being something that looks like PR, right? Right. You're trying to sort of drag them into a public fight of some sort. Um, This is something that, generally speaking, a lawyer wouldn't really do. You either cooperate or you don't, right? And so I would imagine that what's about to ensue is a little bit of difficulty in getting Ginny to testify. That is my prediction here. Yeah. And I'm excited. I mean, every time Ginny's in the news, the only truly fun thing happening on, on the <laughs> related to the Supreme Court is the Ginny files, the ongoing Ginny saga. That's right. Primetime Ginny. Whenever Ginny testifies, that shit should be 8 p.m. Eastern. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said somebody called it January 6th. Uh, <laughs> love that. <laughs> that should be the That's the kind of dumb shit we need to be leaning That's into. That's right. That should absolutely yeah. be the what is that called the Chiron? The Chiron. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the yeah. Chiron and the bottom of the 24-hour news cycle, January mm-hmm. 6th. Yeah, I've been a huge Ginny fan ever since I found out that she called Anita Hill in the middle of the night to be like, why did you do that to my husband? Right. When you're definitely okay with it and believe <laughs> your husband, that's when you call the woman who accused him 20 years later. Um, <laughs> yeah. oh, I, I, I mean, I, I think it, it should go without saying, um, but to the extent that we are ever going to become some of the asshole streamer that 
sort of like rose to prominence during the uh, Johnny Depp Amber Heard trials. We will absolutely be doing doing it when Ginny is testifying in front of the January. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's that's right. That's our that's moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there will be a headline that's like the podcasters who became millionaires during the, the Ginny Thomas testimony. <laughs> oh, all right, everybody. All right. This was thank a lot you. of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. We love, love, love all our Patreon subscribers, everybody who listens. I've said this a thousand times, but we had no, no idea that our podcast would mean anything to really anybody. And um, it's just such a treat to have, like Peter said, to have this community. And we are so, so grateful yeah. that we can commiserate and talk about all this evil shit with others who agree with us. Thank you to James for sprinkling in all those cool gamer references while, while moderating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I always really said important. you guys should never do this, but I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.